chapter 1. We've been talking about uh, the Magnificat, which is the Latin word for to magnify, uh, which is Mary's response to hearing about the gospel and about what God is doing and will do through her, her praise. And so we said three weeks ago as we began to reflect on this, that Christmas is about magnifying Christ as she launches in praise and says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And there we see what Christmas is really about, isn't it? it? It's about having a time where we come together as a family, as a church, and we magnify. We want to reflect the greatness of God for what he's done for us. Now today, we're going to go a little deeper in that, and we see that Mary's experience, when she realizes that the Son of God has come to dwell in her womb, is the same experience for all believers in many ways. She finds out that Christ is in her, the fruit of her womb. And she has these experiences of what you might call gospel grace. And these are the same things I think we see in the believer's life as well, when Christ comes and dwells within us. So let me just read Luke chapter 1, verses 46 down to around 55 in Mary's praise. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's just pray once more for the Lord to really work through his word. Father, praise you for your word. Thank you for how it's scattered through preaching, but yet the power of the word to impact our lives, like we said, to plow deeply and transform us and draw us to worship and joy is from your spirit. And we pray now that your spirit would water the seed that's sown here. Lord, draw us and meet us where we are. Meet the discouraged Christian, Lord, who feels cold and distant. Lord, draw them. Meet the one who doesn't know you with the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Meet the believer who walks with you with deep encouragements from your word. Lord, meet us. Be our counselor. Be our consoler right now, we pray, for the glory of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. God's glory always has an effect upon the life of a man or woman when we experience it. And when it is lost, souls contract. Our heart gets smaller. Yet when 
Christ comes to dwell in the believer, what we see is an enlarging of the heart of the soul. And you say, Rusty, what in the world are you talking about? Let me explain. The man God first created, Adam and Eve, had a soul and a heart capable of experiencing and walking with the glory of God. He communed with God. He resembled God in holiness. And he had an ability to know God and to love his fellow man and to truly care for creation. When man disobeyed God, the enlargement that we're talking about here and the ability of our hearts and soul was gone. Sin evaporated it. A love for God and his greatness was lost. So that our hearts, you might say, were contracted to a very small dimension. Now governed by selfish principles and feelings so that now what governs a small heart and man is I want to do what I want to do. What was lost was experiencing and knowing God, his greatness, and the joy of that relationship. Immediately after the fall, God in his mercy entered into the work of redeeming man to himself. Or you might say bringing the heart of men out of this small contracted state to a place where our hearts and lives are enlarged again, governed now by a love for him and a desire to do his will. And it is through Christ that God does this very thing. Through our faith, his very nature now dwells in you, enlarging your heart to know him. Now, in Luke 1, we see the beginning of this very thing with Mary. When the angel shares with her the gospel message, what God is about to do in the world, that God is going to keep his promises of redemption made all the way back to Abraham and to David and to the prophets. And he was going to do it by becoming a man. And this Savior would first enter her womb before he entered into the world. To again bring God's kingdom, his light, his truth, his glory to the world. And we will see that she responds in worship. Now her experience is very similar to your experience when you became a believer. She hears the gospel. She experiences God's glory, his greatness, and she believes it. And it has an effect upon her soul and her spirit, she says, right? When people hear and believe the gospel message, it always has an effect on them. Always. The glory of God's Spirit living in us always has an effect. And I think it's an enlarging effect upon us. He begins to restore the capacity that sin destroyed. And that's a capacity to know God again. To walk with Him, to love Him, and to obey Him. And then also on a capacity and ability to love our fellow man. So here's the main idea today. Christ came to enlarge our hearts to love and obey God again. To turn it off of a small heart that's confined and restricted to self-love, to knowing and loving God for the first time, able to do his will because he dwells in us. You call that an enlarging of the heart because Christ comes in there. Now, when Christ enters Mary and she believes there are four effects of God's glory upon her 
And I think that there's similar effects that all believers experience. Here's the first one. She's aware. She's aware of God working. Look in your Bibles at verse 48 and 49. And let's read that again. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Do you see what she says? She knows God has looked on me. He's done great things for me. And of course she's referring to the child. But her awareness is God's working. He's doing something. Christ has come into me, and it's evident. It's, it's more than just her belly getting bigger. Christ has dwelt in her, and it's evident. There's an enlarging of her heart. It is an awareness of God, who he is, his glory, that was not there before, what he's doing. C.S. Lewis describes this awareness. When he became a believer in his faith, he says it like this. I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken for me to become a Christian. I was driven to Whipsnay, which is where he was living. One sunny morning, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached there, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, lying still, motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. I'm aware. I'm awake. I can know God now. Something's changed in me through the Savior. Mary has an awareness that God has done great things for her. Faith begins with an awareness of what God has done for us through Christ coming into the world. The Spirit gives us suddenly eyes to see the nature of our own hearts and a God who truly cares for us and has done great things for us, like Mary says, through His grace. Now, not only is there an awareness, but there's an amazement, isn't there? Verse 46 to 49. Verse 46 to 49. Notice what she says there in the very beginning. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Stop there. And she goes on to say, he's considered my humble estate. She's saying, I'm a simple woman. There's nothing special about me. I'm ordinary. I'm common. And he's looked upon me. His eyes, his will has acted. And she's amazed. Notice those words. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And she's saying, can you believe it? Can you believe it? She's surprised that God chose her to fulfill all the promises to the Jews and to the world. And we see this not just in her, but in the other New Testament writers. They're amazed at God's grace towards them. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. This is the Christian response to God's work. It's an awareness of grace, and then it's an amazement that God would look down and show us personally 
grace and salvation. Charles Wesley says it like this in his great hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, for him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, Wesley says. For all who truly experience and know the gospel by faith, like Mary, like Paul, there is an amazement of the love of God. And our response is always, how can it be? Like Mary, when Christ enters a person's life by faith and through repentance, their heart is set free. It's enlarged to love, to know, and to obey God. The gospel message they begin to understand amazes them. And the more they see of Christ, of who he is, it's like an onion peeling it back. The more they're amazed at what they see. And this amazement continues to grow and grow and grow. You say, amazed at what? Well, like Mary says, that he has looked upon me. The God of all the universe has taken time to personally consider me. He sent his son to die in my place as my substitute. He set his spirit to call and adopt me into his family. And he did this for someone who does not deserve it, but he chose to love me. This is God's amazing grace to sinful, polluted hearts. And our response is, how can this be? What kind of God is this? Now, certain graces, all Christians experience in their relationship with Jesus. First, an awareness of his working. Secondly, an amazement of his work. And thirdly, there's a humility because of his work. Verse 48 and 49 again. Notice how she says in verse 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. One Puritan said it like this, Where absence of humility, so we also have absence of Christianity. Christ is not there, they said. Mary is face to face with the angel of God. The power of God to place a baby and an unknown virgin's womb. And the Spirit is coming upon her. And she says, He's come to the humble estate of this servant. My friends, humility comes by encountering the presence and the character and the glory of God. His holiness, His power, His wisdom. And then we begin for the first time to see ourselves for what we really are before Him. Naked, sinful, unrighteous, unworthy. And after God has humbled us by knowing Him, shown us our need, we come to Him saying, Lord, I have nothing to give. And He says, yes, I know that you have nothing. And like Peter, we say, I am sinful. Like Isaiah, I am undone. Like Paul, I am the chief of sinners. And the Scripture says to us, to all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. The gospel then says, trust in me for all your righteousness, what I did for you, and I will fill you full of my righteousness as Christ comes upon you. On a visit to the Beethoven Museum in Bonn, a young woman saw Beethoven's piano, which if you're a pianist, must have been a pretty cool sight, and she really wanted to go play. And so... 
she went up to the guard and she said um, something like this. You suppose I could play? And he said, not on your life. She pulled out a big handful of money and she said, you suppose I could play now? And he said, have a go. (laughs) And she sat down and she tinkled out Moonlight Sonata. And as she was leaving, she said to the guard, I suppose all the great pianists who come here want to play on that piano. And the guard shook his head, and he said, Paderewska, which I'm going to butcher, Paderewska, the Polish pianist, was here a few years ago, and he said, I am not worthy to play on that piano when offered. William Farley says about the gospel, the cross strips us of all pride. It proclaims both the judgment I deserve and the love of God that is my boast and my confidence. My friends, the whole frame of the gospel is designed to bring about humility in your life and in mine. Often we have a wrong view of humility, though. We think it comes from a life that's utterly consumed with my own sinfulness. So we beat ourselves up, don't we? We live low. We eat low. We dress low. Go around looking depressed. But this is just a road to spiritual pride. It's just a road on, look at me. Look at what I've given up for Jesus. Mary puts her finger on true humility. She says it like this. That he would consider the humble estate of his servant. Humility is about being consumed not with my sinfulness, but with God's greatness and sufficiency for me. Coming daily to the throne of grace to worship, trusting that we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. The greatest demonstration of humility is not beating ourselves up. It's living a life purely resting and trusting in the righteousness of Christ for me. Worshiping a God that is all-powerful, all-glorious, all-satisfying, and has done all things I need to be reconciled to him and to be satisfied in this life. Lastly, this leads to rejoicing. Rejoicing. Notice how Mary says there in verse 47, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. God's will is that he himself is the great joy and delight of your life. When we come to Christ, the Spirit enlarges our heart with a new ability because Christ is there. Through Christ, God now stands before you in two distinct ways. He is your Lord to be obeyed, his will, and he is your portion to be enjoyed. So through Christ, we now have God in two amazing ways. He is our Lord, and we can, with an enlarged heart by the Holy Spirit's power, obey his will. But on the second part of that, he is our portion now given to us so that we might have real joy. The believer has a duty to obey God's will. Trusting God's will is what is right and true. 
But we also have an expectation of benefit and joy from God as we obey him. These two go hand in hand. They're like the two sides of one coin, obedience and joy. For the believer, Christ is our Lord to be obeyed, but he's also our portion to be enjoyed. And those two are interwoven, aren't they? You can't separate them. You might say it like this, Christ is our great benefactor, given us all things, and he's our Lord, the same. When a person becomes a believer, Christ enters their life, enlarged in their heart to be able to love and follow him as Lord, and then also to be able to really enjoy God as our great portion in this life. Does that make sense? Because I can give it to you again. I think this is one of the things that's lost most in the Christian life. When we think about God's will and we think about obeying the Savior, the last thing that often comes to our mind is joy. But it's the first thing in the Lord's mind. And when we, when we have one, we have the other. In other words, the life that God calls us to live and gives us the ability through his Holy Spirit to live, his will, that is also the life that leads to the greatest joy and delight. That's how God has designed it. They're interwoven. Now, when you flip that on its head, that means the life that's lived furthest away from God's will will be the life that leads to the least joy and the greatest amount of pain. In every way, through Christ, God is your best good. These are the elements of true relationship with Christ, the experience of knowing the Savior and his work. Not important how it happened, because it happened to each of us differently, or if it was an amazing experience, or if it was a small thing. What's important is these things have happened. And that you know Christ personally through faith. And Christmas is a time to magnify God for his work in you. And a time of awareness of what God has done for us. And a time for amazement that God has become man. Humility that he's become a man, not just as a king, but as a servant to die for you. And rejoicing that God of the universe has enlarged my heart through his Holy Spirit. It's what we call being born again so that I can know him, follow him, and enjoy him in this life. Amen? Will you pray with me? Father, we just praise you for the gospel message, Lord. And we, we see from the very beginning here the fruits of it in Mary's life. There's an awareness in her. God's done something. There's an amazement. He's done it for me. Lord, and there's a great joy in her and a humility. Father, and that's all of us. If we know Christ, we know humility. Lord, not a humility that beats ourselves up every day, that feels like I need to look like the lowest, but a humility that looks up to an awesome and powerful God and says, this is a God worth worshiping, worth knowing, worth following because of who he is and what he's done for us. And as we do that, you fill our hearts full of joy and delight in you. I just praise you. That's the gospel message, and that's how you designed it. Thank you, O oh God, that the capacity that you've given us to know and enjoy you can only be filled through the Savior. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you will, please stand with us. In your hymn books, if you'll turn to hymn number 196, we'll sing the first and the last verse of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And Jesus came, the 